Welcome to another Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following two-part presentation, entitled A Response to Global Warming, was presented by Professor Jeff Lacey and the Reverend Stephen Ames on Wednesday, April 1, 2009, in the New Study Centre at Yarra Theological Union. Part 1, from Jeff Lacey, a civil engineer and well-known environmentalist and naturalist. He's the author of a landmark work on the ecology of the Yarra, Still Glides the Stream, the Natural History of the Yarra from Heidelberg to Yarra Bend. He is an honorary senior fellow at the University of Melbourne. Professor Lacey discusses how society has failed to adequately respond to the global warming crisis and proposes a prophetic model as an impetus for change. A transcript of his lecture is available on our website located at www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au In the second part, the Reverend Stephen Ames draws out some theological reflections on the implications for how we might adjust to environmental threats. Stephen is an Anglican priest a canon at St. Paul's Cathedral, and he lectures in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne. He is one of the founders of Social Policy Connections and first president of the Yarra Institute for Religion and Social Policy. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website, as I mentioned, at www.socialpolicyconnections.org. First, here is Jeff Lacey. Friends, uh, we are living in a time of, of global warming. Let us consider what this means. At the end of last year, Professor Ian Lowe Summing up recent findings of scientific bodies pointed out, until recently, methane levels in the air had been stable for a decade, but there has been a surge. The methane is coming from the Arctic. This is the sign that climate scientists have been warning about, a possible tipping point. Warming is releasing methane from tundra, increasing warming and causing further methane releases possibly setting in train an unstoppable surge in temperature. Last December, a paper from the Tyndale Centre for Climate Change at Manchester argued that to give the Earth an even chance of limiting warming to two degrees, carbon emissions must peak by 2015 and decline to zero by around 2050. Well, Let us now consider a few responses to this issue of global warming. Um, The first response I want to consider is denial. Well, to be sure, outright climate scepticism is on the decline, but governments, while acknowledging climate change, are formulating policy as if the problem did not exist. It's generally realised that the Australian government's proposed carbon trading legislation is completely inadequate as a response to the problem. Worse still, um, it was reported late last year 
that Europe took a step towards scrambling for the vast mineral riches of the Arctic that are being opened up by global warming. In other words, the European Union and other uh, powers in the region intend to benefit from melting the Arctic ice, even though that will make the problem worse. Meanwhile, there's no denial in the places that are starting to go underwater, the Maldives, Tuvalu, Kiribati, and each week or so an outlying village in the Ganges Delta folds up as the people can no longer keep out the high tide. But now, that's one response to Nile. Now let's consider a different kind of response from several of the powerful forces in the global establishment. I'm thinking of, well, those organisations that accept the reality of global warming and agree that we must make changes, but the changes they want are those that ensure that in the realm of political and economic power, everything remains the same. Examples of this are clean coal, nuclear power and geoengineering. In the present quarterly essay, Guy Pearce points out that when you look at what is actually being invested, clean coal is not about cleaning up the atmosphere, but rather cleaning the image of the coal industry. Um, the term geoengineering refers to proposals to subject the entire planet to a gigantic piece of engineering. The favoured scheme is to get sulphate aerosol particles into the upper atmosphere in order to reflect back solar radiation into space. And I'll consider this a bit further on. On a lighter note, we might observe the various schemes by which you can pay for carbon offsets if you travel by plane. Um, it seems to me we witness here the rebirth of indulgences in secular form. <laughs> and I've been told they are getting cheaper and if you shop around you can get an offset for less than $5. Well, what then should be done? How do we respond to global warming in a meaningful way? Uh, I'd like to consider first one approach by um, a, a relatively small number of environmental activists uh, an, an approach perhaps derived from Al Gore and that's the notion that governments should declare a global emergency. Such groups point out that all of these very fast large scale transformations that have happened you know, such as mobilising for the Second World War are characterised by a strong government role in planning backed by sufficient administrative power to achieve a rapid response that is beyond the capacity of society's normal functioning. Well, it seems to me that while climate change requires urgent action, there's something inappropriate with evoking an emergency. It has, after all, a military character to it, which hardly brings sensitivity to nature or to people. Of course, government planning is necessary and we need a strong public sector, but declaration of emergency would result in new repressive powers, as in the case of terrorism. And we might note that um, the coal lobby still has very strong influence on the, the current Australian government, as in the previous one, so there's no reason to think 
that what the government wants to do about climate change would coincide with what environmentalists would want to do. And any such powers might well be used to suppress dissent if it was aimed at, for example, the government's environmental performance. Writing, in the, writing on this matter in the current issue of Arena magazine, John Hinkson observes, the absence of social interpretation is a familiar tendency in environmental writing. The question of the social conditions of environmental destruction is hardly ever raised. He points out that to make a difference, we need to reach down into the cultural assumptions that we feel but barely know. So my paper now is one attempt to address this absence he's talking about. In particular, I want to reflect on the biblical tradition and consider a prophetic response to the issues of our time. According to theologian Brueggemann, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. It is a matter of addressing in season and out of season the dominant crisis that is enduring and resilient. So what the prophetic voice is calling for is a deep change in persons and in the culture, something that cannot be reached by evoking a sense of fear, guilt or emergency. The prophetic stance is one that challenges and empowers. First of all, it must challenge the ruling system of values, the presuppositions that underlie our economic and technological system and the institutions that uphold this system. It is a matter of getting at the roots of the global warming crisis. For a model of the prophetic stance, let us consider the Beatitudes in the New Testament. Palestine at the time of Christ was the object of imperial, imperial oppression and people were impoverished. This was the context in which Jesus was teaching and acting and he said, um, according to Luke, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great multitude of people who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So Jesus is telling the poor, those who have been marginalised and made destitute, that a quite different future is possible and that they themselves are the agents of that future. He is turning the ruling ideology on its head and proclaiming the seemingly impossible. The term kingdom of God was familiar to the people at the time with their Old Testament formation. And what Jesus was proclaiming was a thorough transformation of persons and community in which justice and compassion would be central. This was not a political revolution in any familiar sense. The Roman Empire remained powerful for a few more centuries, but something new happened to these people. In spite of the harsh constraints, they began to be agents of their own destiny. They proclaimed their good news, they shared things in common, and through the details of daily life, they witnessed the incarnation, the fullness of the divine presence in the world. They persisted in season and out of season. 
So what are we to make of our world and the ruling ideologies of today? To answer this, we have to consider what is most characteristic of our age. I argue that this is our technology. To understand how this came about, we need to look back to the scientific revolution in Europe. The philosopher who did most to systematise the new outlook was Descartes. In his Discourse on Method, he expressed the vision of his time. Nature worked according to mechanical laws and everything could be explained in terms of the arrangement and movement of its parts. Our new mastery of the mathematical sciences gave us the power to modify and develop nature. It was therefore our destiny to use nature to remodel it for its own development and for our human well-being and progress. We could, in Descartes' words, thereby make ourselves, as it were, masters and possessors of nature. The implementation took time, and it was not until the late 19th century that we began to witness the growth of the complex and powerful technologies that we know today. One thinker who helped me understand the dynamics involved in these technologies was Jacques Ellul. For him, modern technology is a system, a set of elements, all interrelated, reacting to one another, acting together as an integrated whole. The recognition that technology is a system is most important if we are to fully understand the modern world. In fact, the economic and state administrative systems are permeated and unified by technology. It is indeed the characteristic phenomenon of our age. The key feature of the technological system is self-propelled growth. At any moment, the system gives rise to countless possibilities of innovation. With microelectronics, for example, each intervention immediately suggests further developments, and current favourites include, say, the internet, the mobile phone, and the anticipated high-speed broadband. The growth in innovation has unfortunately been accompanied by growth in overall energy demand. The wastage of energy and forest products has continued in spite of the more sophisticated developments and our present technology remains one of high energy use and so it continues to give rise to global warming. A new frontier is genetic engineering. The information theory guiding computer systems is now being designed, uh, applied to biological systems and cracking the genetic code is seen as equivalent to unravelling the computer program. So Descartes' dream of mastery over nature through the understanding of the mathematical character appears to reach fulfilment in this marriage of engineering and biology. However, Descartes' notion of the world as a complex machine is replaced by the new concept of life as information. Another new frontier is the proposed geoengineering that I have mentioned. In particular, the proposal to get sulphate aerosol particles into the upper atmosphere to reflect back solar radiation. This would be the first attempt to subject the entire Earth to human technological control. 
and it assumes that it is appropriate to exercise control over the entire natural world and that in the process we can improve the world. But how can we be sure what is best for the earth and how can we foresee all the consequences? And what if the major powers had different ideas about the optimum temperature for the world? For example, the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans. Wouldn't that open up the earth and the atmosphere to military tensions? In other words, climate could become a weapon of cold or hot war. And while the aerosols lasted, moreover, the sky would not be blue. What are the values that guide the development of the technological system? Well, many social forces interact when decisions about innovations are made. Uh, Corporations are motivated by the goals of profit and growth. Governments like to enhance their power. The genuine popular appeal for new technologies is also important. While recognising the interrelationship between these factors, with Ellul, I argue that it is the broadly based affinity for technology itself that is most central, that is the most central and pervasive value. The technological system with its underlying mechanistic view that was first spelt out by Descartes has become a source of values. The growth of technology with its increasing sophistication and insertion into new aspects of life is regarded by many as a desirable goal in itself. Many take it for granted that a technological development that is supported by substantial research and investment must go ahead, that this represents progress which must not be opposed. Just start a discussion on nuclear power, for example, and you'll be told that it must go ahead. There is no alternative. The path of technical or mathematical order is thus allowed to shape society and the natural world. Well, the prophetic task is to reveal and challenge these assumptions that are taken for granted and then to open up the alternatives to dream of a different future. Looking again to the New Testament, we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Many have failed to see what the gospel is teaching us here. It seems too simple and commonplace to be noticed and believed. Yet here is a radically different consciousness. We are being invited, first of all, simply to look, to see what we haven't noticed, such as the lilies of the field. They are the clue, the key to the kingdom of God, to the different vision, that of a natural world in which we can feel at home without anxiety and without need for domination, but with a sense of what is sufficient. We wake up and see the immediate world in a new way, in all its richness and potential. Attention is focused on the present moment and the local place. Only here can we encounter the truth 
and engage in this alternative reality, the kingdom. Today, much is at stake in the ruling values of our society, the values of the global elite, the natural world is disvalued. It is seen as a set of resources to be developed. The lack of serious policies about global warming by governments such as our own reflects a lack of seriousness about the natural world. With the suggested geoengineering, even the entire earth would be open to our manipulation. But the gospel points us in a different direction where even the inconspicuous grass of the field is of value. Furthermore, it points beyond itself to the divine presence among us, the creation, the incarnation. Well, modern Western culture has by no means lost its memories of the past, nor forgotten the the gospel message. The organic alternative to the mechanistic view of nature has been expounded by various writers and expressed by artists. In this alternative view, it is not possible to understand the world just in terms of the material particles and their motions or to reduce living organisms to mechanisms. Of the wide range of technologies available to us, it's important to make choices to develop some technologies and reject others. The concept of appropriate technology made popular by Shoemaker has provided guidelines. From now on, our technologies will have to be in harmony with nature, grounded in an ecological matrix and deeply attuned to it. To minimise global warming, it is necessary to reduce the consumption of fossil fuels to a small fraction of present use. So our energy will have to come from renewable sources. These cannot provide us with energy at anything like the present scale of use. This applies particularly to transport. A sustainable future will involve a more localised lifestyle and economy. The cultural change reflecting the organic view implies a new engagement, therefore, with our local landscape and its ecosystems and our local traditional culture. We have to develop a greater sense of the place we live in. Over the past 20 years, I have been engaged in revegetation projects and in the monitoring of plant and animal species. With time, I came to recognise the deeper significance of this work. I discovered that the awareness of the natural world in all its immediacy takes us on a beautiful journey and every patch of earth has a message for us. Consider one episode I recorded in my book, Reading the Land, about a September walk in forest on Mount Wellington, French Island. This forest contains some old messmate trees and a variety of shrubs, yet it has an open, spacious aspect. Nearly all of the plants were in flower. A number of honey eaters of several species were feeding on the abundant nectar. Golden whistlers were singing and round thornbills calling. I was surprised to find patches of ground that were churned up by echidnas seemed to favour wildflowers rather than shrubs or grasses. For example, button everlasting and various rice flowers were conspicuous in such places. 
I found it good to be in such an ecosystem where we can sense our relationship with all these creatures and their the intricate web of connections. We are drawn in to explore deeply this community and its landscape. An old live messmate, two metres in diameter, with broken branches, escaped being logged. It had no use in the economy, yet it is still there, demanding a quiet acceptance, just as it is. So I conclude that when we engage with our local surroundings, we become familiar with our own home. Each place has its own special character, its own mystery that we can explore yet never know completely. Here we begin the deep cultural change that the world needs. Through our simple observations and activities, we are saying that this change is urgent. The crisis of global warming is something we never previously imagined. There are many urgent tasks. Some of these are political directed to getting sound policies and practice on carbon emissions, water and forest management. Along with action in these fields, there is even a more urgent task because it is lacking. This is the task of going deeply into the cultural causes of the present participant and expressing a vision of sufficient spiritual depth to make real change possible. I think that our main role is this prophetic one to engage in critique of the established worldview and to show that a different and abundant life is possible. Well, I'll talk about our present situation and then I want to talk about a retrospective reflection and a prospective reflection. Here's, here's what I want to say in a nutshell. That um, we're surrounded by multiple uh, issues of turbulent change, which has got an interesting past that I want to speak about. Up until recently I would say that many people felt that the only thing you can be sure of is that life's going to change and we must it's, it's so comprehensive, it's like a force of nature, it's, and we just have to adapt, we have to accept it. However, most recently, and I don't mean just because of the bushfires, but what we've been discovering, at least two features about the turbulent change which we've been immersed in for the last several decades, and that is that things are happening faster than we anticipated even though we had all kinds of warnings about them. And therefore, quite a number of people are beginning afresh or again or at another level to question whatever it is that uh, is driving this. It seems something fundamental has gone astray. And so some fundamental change is needed. On the other hand, there are quite a large number of people, uh, some of whom Jeff referred to, who think that there's nothing wrong with the fundamentals. What we need is a few corrections, a few fixes. Now I want to talk about what led us to this, but here's where I think it's going to lead. I think that uh, on balance, that those who think that only a correction is needed will prevail. 
that those who feel that some fundamental changes are needed will not succeed, that the processes that are in train and accelerating will overwhelm the lot of them, that only those elites with enough resources will be able to protect themselves and adapt to, the, to this utter turbulence, catastrophic turbulence, that social Darwinism will actually operate. Millions will die. So that's in a nutshell. Um, I've got, I've got a something like a unless, but I must say it's a bit hard to do the unless. Just I'm still digesting what I've just said. I guess I've come to the view that that's what's going to happen. That is, given the way we're going, that looks like what will happen. And that's certainly having impact on me. Um, so, now, now, to go into these matters uh, a little more, um, we're dealing with the human-induced global warming, uh, the threat of catastrophic uh, change globally, and of course with a diversity of regional impacts that are no less catastrophic. Um, the food crisis, the increase in population, uh, even the return of the nuclear weapons uh, issues, and of course the financial crisis. Um, the thing that I said the two things, it doesn't matter which any of those that you're talking about, they're happening faster than, than our political or other processes for digesting it can handle. And it's not for lack of information. It's not as if something there's a blank and something pops out of a blank that we didn't know about. But our capacities to act on these things, to take them in and act on them, is lags well behind, now here's the word, two words I use, the velocity and the ferocity of the changes. And therefore we are seriously out of touch with the processes in which we are immersed. And it is an interesting question of why we are so out of touch and in what ways and so on. I'll say something about that in a minute. And now I've mentioned the two groupings of people, people who are being drawn in varying degrees of seriousness and depth to question, and those who think that corrections, basically the fundamentals are fine, but the corrections are all we need. And, and we can do it. I'd like to now have a retrospective on that. Have a look back and see, uh, at the risk of great simplifications, but nevertheless, um, Mr. Rudd, uh, you may remember in his recent um, article, uh, talked about an epoch of about 30 years that we're, that's now coming to an end and we're in some sort of transition. I think the epoch is a lot longer. I would agree with uh, John, uh, with uh, Jeff. My apologies, Jeff. Um, uh, so I would, I'm here I'm following uh, the work of Cliff Hooker, an Australian scientist and philosopher, formerly an Anglican, now an atheist, um, uh, but um, whose view is that from uh, Renaissance and from all the usual suspects, of course, but especially from the rise of natural sciences in the 16th and 17th century, there has been developing what he calls 
a societal change engine. A change engine that's been accelerating and expanding. And I'd like just to indicate what he thinks about this. Um, his view is that biological processes are the sa- uh, cultural and social processes are the same as biological processes. He's a complete naturalist. I think that there are some useful analogies. Here's his point. I just want to make my position distinguish from his. Here's his point. He says that biologically, uh, in a stable environment, those species do best that invest resources in uh, multiplying offspring and adaptation, ever-refined <coughs> adaptations to the stable environment. On the other hand, in a changing environment, it's those species that have resources that have been invested but perhaps unused, that resources into adaptability that do best because they are able to adapt to, they have capacities for adaptation to a changing environment. Now he says that um, with the rise of the natural sciences, there was privileged a particular form of inquiry not one that was completely unknown, but it was given a privilege. And it consisted, this form of inquiry is you push the environment, you push the context, and you observe what happens. You probe, and you observe what happens. You experiment, you disturb in systematic ways, perhaps, surely, but you disturb and you watch what happens. You learn how to produce and control, that is, predict and control phenomena. Now when that, that gets elaborated and uh, extends human capacities in, through technology and then links up with the modes of production and distribution and exchange and uh, the generation of a market, you get then a situation in which the social and, and in due course indeed the, through, even in the industrial revolution the physical or natural environment is being disturbed. And so, according to Hooker's view, which I am this much, I'm certainly adopting, under these conditions where there's, there's a societal change engine that's disturbing the environment, social and otherwise, those people, those communities who are oriented to adaptation, namely indigenous communities, par excellence, are the ones most disadvantaged by this societal change engine. Those uh, communities and individuals who, have, who carry with them, for whatever reason, exactly resources for adaptation, for, they've got resources for adaptability, do better. They come to be advantaged. And, and as, this, as this goes on, there, I, I would identify about five different groupings. That There's the leading edge of the elites that have such resources of wealth, intellect, uh, and so on and so on, that can, that can do well under conditions of changing environment, which they themselves keep promoting, because that's to their advantage. Those who systematically disagree with that, who uh, most recently perhaps those who are downsizing, but religious communities of some sort or another, um, people who all, uh, remember an older form of life, which was much more marked by stable face-to-face relationships not doing so well. People who are just surviving, who don't have the wherewithals 
to adapt to this changing environment, now accelerating. Right? And then those people who do not survive, who are rendered invisible. The particular Australian name for them, of course, is Terra Nullius. So here's the picture of, of the situation we're in, where now uh, uh, um, the, the societal change engine has, has advanced to such an extent that not only is society subject to continuous turbulent change and with it the sort of changes needed for each of us to carry within ourselves, but the whole natural environment is being drawn into this vast uh, societal change engine, which might be theorised as like as if it was a natural force, but as Jeff was saying, this is something we produce, this is uh, our work. Now, um, of course, the leading edge of this societal change process will protect its advantage. It will concentrate, consume, gather and protect those resources and what have you, whatever's needed to maintain and further its advantage. Um, those on that leading edge will see themselves as the bearers of unlimited possibilities. Um, behind them, because this, to use another term, which I just, I just mentioned, so this is like a um, term that's going out of my head. Don't worry about that, it'll come back to me, I know. But in the wake of this change process is, uh, is the waste that it produces uh, and, and the rest of us uh, live in it, help contribute to it, um, do what we can with it. Um, um, and of course, because of its power, the self-understanding of this is, is, is dominated by the dominant processes producing the change of which Jeff was describing, uh, for example, an approach to nature that sees it as a mechanism to be objectified. Um, so, um, now, there's a rave I'm about to uh, get into um, about um, what are the effects of this. One of the effects of this is that uh, with the destabilizing, to keep up with it, being drawn into it, means that you cannot go down into depth. Depth is the contra to turbulent change. You have to stay on the surface. Um, so that what comes into what comes what is is privileged here is relationships that are superficial and attention to the immediate, to the latest breaking thing. Um, and um, value becomes instrumental. Uh, um, communications, the balance between face-to-face -face communications and technologically extended communications tips in the favour of technologically extended uh, um, communication. And why are we out of touch? The 21st century self-image uh, on the leading edge is that um, we are the actors. We are not the acted on. We know. Um, the image of uh, 
the radically autonomous individual uh, is also uh, part of our the self-understanding. And these are fundamentally mistaken. Why? Because, because actually everything is connected to everything else. But secondly, there's another thing. This is about the ontology of action. So we, we make decisions, we act, and the effects of those actions... Right. in a very short order, start to have a life of their own. And it's very easy then to become the, what Luther would say, bondsman to the work of our own hands. We be, we, the, the, the illusion of autonomy, of radical autonomy, um, is confounded both by the fact that everything is connected to everything else, and also... Our actions have consequences that have weight. And um, this, of course, is quite the opposite of the emergence of fantasy and virtual reality, which we can reconfigure at will. In fact, reality is not like that. The last thing, of course, is that in this context, because of the interplay between the... Um, technologically driven change and also the um, market forces, the economy becomes the, the framing context. Right. Now, um, I need to add one more thing at least to Hooker's uh, description and that is um, this societal change engine certainly from the 18th century, early 18th century on its self-understanding and its understanding of the world becomes more and more naturalistic and therewith atheistic. A growing full-on materialism uh, with reactions, of course, romanticism and various other reactions, but nevertheless the, the preponderance of this is to uh, produce a full-on naturalism in which God seems more and more absent from the world. And so I would say that what we see in this process is um, a loss of God. The world is driven by blind, purposeless processes, which science seems to make perfectly clear. I stress both words, seems to make perfectly clear. A world in which, is, uh, as evolution brings more and more to light, uh, suffused with natural evil, um, of all the violence and disorder that's needed to produce um, beautiful animals and plants. A loss of humanity, that is the diminishing of face-to-face -face relationships, the, the foregrounding of the egotistical and self-interested, um, the replacement of intrinsic value with instrumental value, and of course therewith the disruption of communities large and small in this societal change engine. Um, and the dreadful, one of its manifestations, the dreadful work-life imbalance. Now, that's my sense of um, my sense of the situation we're in and what is what is driving it on. But with this addition, I think that the loss of the intrinsic, um, the loss of uh, stability, the loss of especially ultimate referent, is itself a fuel and a driver 
for the change process. I think it's quite integral to the daily experience of being turned into consumers who can never have enough. I consider that to be, that subjectivity is no mean trick. So, um, when I think about these things, uh, there are a number of theological themes that come, that I want to bring. But, but before I do that, I just want to say my own estimate is, and in talking with uh, well, people I talk with who are not Christians, who are, um, I have to say, talking with Christians as well, I do not want to concede to my colleagues, my, my interlocutors, I do not want to concede that view of the world. I think it is mistaken. Before I open up the Gospels, before I speak from Revelation, I want to have the argument. I want to argue that the naturalism is wrong. I want to argue that the loss of intrinsic value is wrong. Um, I want to argue that the ontology, the what kind of world is this that it, that it promotes, is mistaken. I want that to be a philosophical argument. I refuse to concede the ground that the world is best described by that kind of change process and that kind of naturalism. I can't go into that tonight, except that my research and my interest is certainly to, uh, to, to address that matter. Another story for another night. I just want to stress that, lest, um, well, there's a lot of things. We can ask me about that perhaps. 20? I've got five minutes. Okay. I'll just mention these theological themes and I'll just say one of them. I think that, that coming from the side of the church, uh, this is the worship of the living God versus the worship of idols. And this vast societal change engine is a moving, not a living, but a moving idol. I think that the true humanity of Christ uh, should be contrasted, now to use uh, an old uh, term, the doceticism of our present day which denies the true humanity of human beings. I think that also the worship of the true God must be contrasted to the uh, false gods, um, the loss of transcendence, imminence without transcendence and spurious kinds of transcendence without the imminence. I think the God that we worship is both transcendent and imminent. I want to, uh, would like to bring forward also all of Paul's talk about the divine economy compared to the surrogate human economies that want to be able to define reality. That is to do the God job. And I certainly would like, well I can go on. There's three or four more, so there we go. I think that the, the what I said at the start then, I do believe that the struggle between those who think something is fundamentally wrong and needs to be changed and those who think some correction only is needed will be worked out in favour of the latter. The social Darwinism implicit or explicit, I should say, in Hooker's view will prevail. Now, because I think that A, the processes are so comprehensive and changing already at such a pace and with such 
with such a velocity and ferocity that would overtake the, the uh, delaying effects of those who just want to make corrections, right, whose voice in the political processes will prevail. Unless there was, I'll speak for myself, a remarkable change in my willingness to engage in a much more radical way, both politically and ecclesially. I, I, I guess I have thought these thoughts for some time, but it was only in a recent context where I felt I was committed to say, where do I think this is going to go, that I wrote this down and I was rather appalled at what I wrote down, but that is my view, I must say. And so I think many of the things that Jeff was talking about, and I think um, the, uh, there's no shortage of information, there's no shortage of practical solutions. The, uh, the Australian Industry Group, uh, just to pick one figure, seem to talk as if there's going to be a, a catastrophe for Australian jobs. I noticed that nobody was worrying about that with the demise or the decimation of the manufacturing sector. Right? But it's a legitimate concern, but its concern is mistaken because the, the number of jobs that are ready to be generated by the, uh, by the solar industry, the renewable energies industries, with, just with the announcement of the 20% is, uh, makes a mockery of that kind of talk. What it means is we want to keep the system the way it is not that there's going to be no new jobs or anything. I think that, that um, for myself, what that means, for example, um, I'm, I'm working, um, St Paul's needs to become a green cathedral with an agenda that is both directed to the community and is itself, on all these matters, as, as the prime, uh, what shall I say, the defining context of mission and the most opportune and perfect opportunity for an exposition of the gospel that, that touches down into the most fundamental <coughs> assumptions that drive our culture. So all that good Catholic talk about evangelization of the culture seems to me to be uh, ripe here. I, I'm not quite sure what it means politically. It means I must pray more earnestly for Mr Rudd and his friends. Mr. Brumby especially, but I'm not yet sure what it means I will do. This is where I'm up to.